A Bloomington nonprofit is answering calls on the new 988 suicide hotline. They're dealing with some of the worst moments in their lives. And so it can be triggering. It can be really difficult. Path fields hundreds of these calls a day. More just ahead on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon. I'm John Norton. Also on the show, District 87 needs more space to expand early childhood education. We actually have a waiting list um, and we have a lot of uh, underserved families that could really use that. Farmers will like the spring forecast for central Illinois. We should see plenty of storm systems roll through, which will give us plenty of moisture and get that crop up out of the ground. Plus, a state agency looks to make funding for the arts more equitable. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Ryan Fuller and his mother Stephanie. I do not wear hearing aids during football. I rely on my teammates a lot and I'm very thankful that they help me a lot. It's really cool how the community rallies around it. Ryan and Stephanie's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good evening to you. I'm John Norton. District 87 has a waiting list for early childhood education. The school system is looking for more space and has reached out to state lawmakers for their help. More on that story coming up in about eight minutes here on Sound Ideas. Let's start the show, though, with the launch of the National 988 Suicide and Crisis Hotline that's led to a hiring surge at Bloomington nonprofit known as PATH. PATH is the main call center provider for the entire state. The first people to answer calls from 85 counties. They're handling over 300 calls every day. And that has required a lot of hiring. PATH is now up to 80 crisis counselors, plus managers and trainers and quality assurance staffers. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, PATH's Director of Call Center Operations, Kevin Richardson, explains what's happened since the hotline launched last summer. Things are busy as ever, uh, frankly. And so We have a ton of new staff who are really doing excellent work, new managers, new supervisors, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're working really closely with the state of Illinois to continue to provide those services and ensure that these calls get answered as they're expected to. The biggest chunk of these new employees are these crisis counselors. You have 80 of them now. How do you find the right people for that kind of job? Because it's it's not an easy one. It's not at all. Um, and to be frank, sometimes through some, some trial and error, uh, there's a lot of things that go into being a crisis counselor. We're safety planning with people. We're hearing stories about folks who they're dealing with some of the worst moments in their lives. And so it can be triggering. It can be really difficult. And sometimes you don't find that out until you're doing it, unfortunately. And so we we go through a a pretty rigorous four-week training period in which, you know, individuals are going to be exposed to some of this stuff. And sometimes people weed themselves out. Um, They just figure out this isn't for me. But, you know, we're asking questions in in the interviews. Um, We do require that folks have a bachelor's degree in some sort of human services field. So they're familiar um, with the work uh, that we will be doing, at least on a base level. And um, so 
we do our best to meet our staff where they're at as well. But at the same time, you know, we're all here for the same cause. We rely on everyone to be there and um, do their work. And so, you know, we're happy to assist in any way that we can with our staff. Do you have any special considerations for those who will be fielding calls from marginalized communities? Do you have anything, any, any way to carve up your staff to deal in that kind of specificity? At PATH, we don't get that specific because on a national level, when you when you dial 988, um, one, there's a line for Spanish, and that would go to a different call center. Um, two, they're, they're actually in the middle of doing a project actually for the LGBTQ population, and so there is an option to press that and get a specialized individual. Same goes for veterans as well. So that's happening on a national level. At PATH, we have an entire training section dedicated to cultural competence, um, inclusivity, um, meeting people where they're at. Um, it talks about various populations that may be marginalized. Um, we know that, you know, just, just offhand, that the, the trans population has a much higher suicide rate attempt rate than the general population. And so, you know, some of training addresses some of this sort of on a sociological level as well. Um, and, and so it's certainly highlighted and um, we highlight the specific issues that folks have to, you know, face if, if they're part of one of these populations. Is it always a phone call? Is it like texts or messages, chats, anything like that? We do answer text and chat as well. The focus is phone calls right now. Um, but everyone who's trained to handle calls is trained to handle chats and texts. Some people prefer one over the other. Um, and so we try to even that out the best that we can with our staff. But um, if you text 988 um, and you have an Illinois-based number, that'll come to us. You can also go onto the, the national website for chat and you fill out a quick thing. And then if it's coded for us, it'll, it'll come to us. So how is, this, how is this all funded? By the state of Illinois. Real simple. Um, they put out a grant called Program 400. This hotline is not new. The expansion of it is new. It used to be the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And so we've always answered for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline since its inception back in 2005. And so um, we've just greatly expanded. And with the legislation that came through Congress, um, 988 is obviously a national endeavor. Um, but it opens up a lot of funding for a full-on crisis continuum, not only within Illinois, but across the nation. Every state's doing it a little differently. But all that being said, there is a lot more funding and focus towards behavioral health, mental health, and 988 is at that core. Do you think it's working? Do you think that shifting from the the, the old, you know, more traditional 10-digit number to a hotline format, this sort of expansion, do you think it's it's doing as what it was intended? 100%. Um, we, you know, I mean, we handle over 300 calls a day on average, and every day there are success stories um, with individuals who uh, will literally come and saying, I don't know if I can make it through the day. And then by the end of the conversation, they are saying, you, you really helped me. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. And you know, whether or not that's a long-term plan, the goal of our line is to always just ensure that we are there to provide, if nothing else, a listening ear. You are a human, we are human, and we want to hear you, and we want to help in any way that we can. 
Um, and so it's absolutely working, and, and research shows that on a national level as well. What's been the biggest uh, challenge in getting this thing, not off the ground, but expanded to the, the size that it is now? Staff. Yeah. Truly, it's it's staffing specifically on some of those later night shifts. Um, we've got folks who work your standard business hours, um, but you we also work 24-7. So we need to staff past midnight. We need to pat staff at 3, 4 a.m., um, so it's tough to fill those roles, especially with a job that's just naturally this difficult that can be that taxing. It takes a special person to do this kind of work. So, you know, we've taken a ton of steps um, to really shift the culture in such a way that's that's positive, it's warm, it's inviting, it's supportive. Um, and so we are doing everything that we can because we know this is a difficult job. Um and we know that we can't do it without our crisis counselors at the core of what's going on. And, you know, I've done the work myself previously. Uh, I know exactly how hard it is. And I know that not every call is going to go the way that you want it to go. You, you can't control what people do or, or don't do. But we can be there and we can we can listen, we can problem solve and we can safety plan. Well, Kevin, what else should our listeners know about the 988 hotline? We are there 24-7. Um, I think that's first and foremost. Again, we are there to provide a listening ear. If you're nervous about who to talk to or what to do in your situation, if you feel like you're at your your wits end with just life or if you you feel like you're bugging your friends or, you know, whatever it might be, you're not bugging us. Just just give us a call, even if it's just to kind of hear you out for a bit. We would love to dig a little deeper, um, safety plan if necessary, connect you with some longer term resources, because at the core, we're just a crisis line. We're not a, a counselor. But I think, you know, people need to know that this exists and that we're there and we're available and we're happy to help as much as we can. That's Kevin Richardson, the director of call center operations at the Bloomington nonprofit known as PATH. He spoke with WGLT's Ryan Denham. PATH is still hiring more call center specialists for 988, paying $50,000 a year. Learn more and apply on the careers page at pathcrisis.org. Coming up tomorrow on Sound Ideas, hundreds of teachers and school administrators gathered in normal to show how women can be empowered in education leadership. Again, that story tomorrow, but next up we'll talk about District 87 schools in Bloomington who want to expand early childhood education, but there are some hoops to jump through to get a new facility. WGLT's Terrence Jones has more. District 87 Superintendent Dave Mauser says the current early childhood program operates out of Sarah Raymond School on West Olive Street. We've got about 300 students in pre-K um, here, and we actually have a waiting list, um, and we have a lot of uh, underserved families that could really use that. And so if we could, you know, if we could double in size, that would be fantastic, right? Instead of building a new school, Mauser says they've begun looking at underused or vacant properties in town. One of those on Oakland Avenue is owned by State Farm. Mauser says the district will fund a purchase of whatever building with reserves, working cash fund bonds already issued, and other budgetary adjustments. There will be no tax increase. But Mauser says it's not as easy as you might think. We can't negotiate uh, really in good faith <laughs> um, and in real time as a school district to take over any uh, building or space for student occupancy without the referendum, which was news to me. And that's even if you have 
you know, you have funding um, uh, available locally that, that you know, you, you have for, for projects. State Representative Sharon Chong of Bloomington and State Senator Dave Kaler of Peoria are helping with legislation to grant District 87 a waiver to buy a building without going to voters. He says the Cater schools received a similar waiver a few years ago. Mauser says the district was still honored the intent of the referendum requirement, which is transparency and public input into the decision. He said any waiver would come with a public hearing provision. Mauser says another factor to take into account is Governor J.B. Prisker's recent statement about expanding pre-K offerings. This feels like a really good time for us to look at this opportunity because there's over $100 million that's been allocated supposedly you know, for, for pre-K programming, pre-K expansion, particularly even grant funding for you know, renovations and buildings for pre-K. Though the State Farm building on Oakland Avenue is only one option, it is big. Mauser says it could potentially also house expanded career and technical education program growth at the other end of the student age range. Reporting with Charlie Schlenker, I'm Terrence Jones. In this season, as the days grow longer, the sun rises earlier, but never as early as the Morning Edition team here to bring you the news every weekday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Wake up with Morning Edition on WGLT, part of the NPR Network. Stories and conversations around Bloomington Normal and McLean County. This is WGLT's Sound Ideas. Longtime Central Illinois meteorologist Mike McClellan says this summer's weather could be similar to the near-perfect late-season growing conditions of 2022. McClellan recently spoke to WGLT agriculture correspondent Tim Alexander about his farming predictions for the year ahead. The best that I can foresee now is that I'm thinking we get the crop in on time, everything should be fine. We have ample soil moisture. I'm thinking that June uh, is going to be above normal temperature wise, but we should see plenty of storm systems roll through, which will give us plenty of moisture and get that crop up out of the ground, get it good and sturdy. And then in July, just based upon looking at some of the analogs back years and years and years, and based upon where we are between La Nina, El Nino, and in the neutral phase, and a bunch of other things that are happening as well, I'm thinking July might be very stable, very stagnant, very cloudy, very, let's say, a little bit on the dry side, uh, but cool. And uh, I don't think that'll hurt us much. And then as we go back into, into August, that stagnant weather pattern shifts back into a more active pattern. We get, you know, necessary rains and we get the heat back. And uh, it could be a, a pretty good year for us, I think, in the in Corn Belt. 2022 started off uh, kind of wet, ended up being uh, ideal growing conditions and just the most perfect harvest weather you could ever have. What kind of things might occur? What kind of wild cards could occur to to foul up such a rosy uh, prognosis for this summer? <laughs> That's always the tricky one. But uh, if there's anything that could potentially happen, if the uh, dryness that I'm anticipating in July extends into August, then even if it's cool, still could be an issue. Uh, anytime we have extended dry periods, you know, several weeks in a, at a time without any significant rain, it can be a problem, whether it's winter, summer, spring, fall, it doesn't matter. Uh, 
and especially in the growing season. So, and even if it is cooler than normal, it could be a problem. So that is my only thought that if it extends into August, uh, it could be an issue. But overall, I think we're in pretty darn good shape. Well, it sounds like we're not going to have that drought materialize this year, hopefully, uh, as some are predicting. But, you know, looking ahead down the road a couple of years, there's some doom and gloom being peddled. We're talking about possible dust bowl conditions. Uh, and I understand there's a cycle to this. There's, there is some science behind it, as you explained during your presentation to the farmers today. But uh, could you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about this uh, projected uh, possible extreme drought, uh, you know, set up for a couple years down the road and what your opinion on that might be? Well, there's a lot of uh, a lot of speculation that we could, based upon the solar cycles, it's a Gleisberg solar cycle that happens between 70 and 100 years, and that is associated with drought, okay? And it's based on solar activity. That's number one. Then if you combine that with what we call the Benner cycle, which is basically every 89 years, um, that is a tree ring prognosis. Looking back, 89 years, 89 years, 89 years, you go back into the 1800s, and like 1847, 1846, you have a scenario where there was very dry weather in parts of the western half of the country. And based upon tree rings, you can see that. Um, and then you go 89 years forward to 1935, 1936. Of course, we had the Dust Bowl. You can see that in the tree rings. So if you go 89 years after that, you're talking about 2024, 2025. Will it be a drought in the western part of the country? I mean, you, you just don't know. I mean, there's some science behind it, but will it happen? I just can't say one way or the other. Uh, the potential is there. There's so many things that have to come into play in order to get a drought in the Midwest. And I can't see any of those happening at this point for 2024, 2025. Um, but I'm not to say it couldn't happen, but I certainly wouldn't be standing up here saying, hey, we're going to have a drought in 2024, 2025 based upon that alone. That was meteorologist Mike McClellan speaking with WGLT Ag correspondent Tim Alexander about his 2023 farming forecast. Support for WGLT agriculture coverage comes from Growmark and its FS members, your trusted advisor in all your ag decisions. Thanks for joining WGLT for Sound Ideas. This is our news magazine. The Illinois Arts Council Agency has been hosting a series of town hall style discussions with artists from across the state. Tim Shelley from sister station WCBU spoke with executive director Joshua Davis Ruperto and board chair Nora Daly about their reasons for the visit and how communities like Bloomington Normal could benefit from the agency's new efforts to view grant opportunities through an equity lens. It was really important for us to meet people in the area where they work and get a sense of what they're doing so that we can find ways to support it. So really that's an ongoing question that we're trying to figure out. And we're hoping that by meeting people one-on-one, -on -one, they're gonna feel more comfortable to reach out to us and let us know what it is that they need and we can help support them as opposed to 
putting on them something that we're hoping to get. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and that's why this, uh, this tour is so important, is to really get a sense of what people are doing and how we can best support them. And let's talk for a second, what exactly are the benefits of art? There's obviously cultural benefits, but there's also economic benefits. Yeah, I mean, I really see it's a combination of uh, um, community building, uh, not only um, you know, working with visual artists, but then it was also them working with actors and a production team and pulling it all together in a medium that it not only beautifies that building um, and uh, a block in the downtown area, but then also provides an educational opportunity for all these young people and people like myself to learn a little bit more. So I really uh, think that collaborative effort of working with artists and arts organizations, they are the fabric of our communities. And um, so we just wanna see the best ways that we can help support it. And I know the Arts Council is looking a little closer at perhaps gaps in funding, things like that. You're, you're partnering with Forefront to do the Racial Equity Initiative. Can somebody talk a little bit about that and what your goals are? Sure. So actually, we just had a meeting with Forefront about that entire project. Um, we're helping get the word out with Forefront to make sure that all of our constituents that we work with around the state participate in that type of research. They're doing that with um, NORC, University of Illinois. Is that right? Yeah, University of Illinois. And um, we're hoping that having our constituents uh, be a part of that conversation, getting a sense of where BIPOC organizations are located around the state, what type of programming is happening specifically for BIPOC organizations. By getting our constituents to be a part of that, it's gonna make them think more about the work that they're doing and also give us more information about where the gaps are and how we might be able to help support that type of work in the future. And we are actually doing a project that's called the Equity Gap Project, and we're working, um, so it's great in tandem with the work that Forefront's doing, um, looking at the national, working with the National State Arts Agency. Is oh, the National uh, Assembly of State Arts Agencies. It's yeah. a national organization yeah. that works with all of the arts councils around the country. Yeah, so we're embarking on a project with them uh, to do a full evaluation of all of our general operating support grants through an equitable lens. Uh, and we're really excited. Uh, there was a pilot project that they did this fall over the recommendations for Ohio. So we're thrilled to be working with them and then working with the community and learning from learning from our own kind of data on uh, where we are now and where we want to be in the future. Um, so it's a really an exciting project that I think will inform uh, um, the agency in the future. That was Illinois Arts Council Agency Executive Director Joshua Davis Roperto and Board Chair Nora Daly speaking with Tim Shelley from Sister Station WCBU during the agency's recent visit to Peoria. And that is Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton with story help today from WGLT's Ryan Denham. Also, Terrence Jones, ag correspondent Tim Alexander, Charlie Schlenker, and WCBU's Tim Shelley. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 FM, WGLT, and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network.